We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, it is good to be together this morning and good to continue on in our study of the book of Revelation. We began last week. If you have a Bible, open to Revelation chapter 1. should be the last book in your Bible. Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 4. We'll read down to verse 8 together. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds And every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word once again. We thank you for it being handed down to us through so many generations. We thank you that your spirit continually speaks through your word to us that we might not just understand truth, but that we might live by that truth. And so Holy Spirit, we ask that this morning as we read through this text as we consider these truths, we pray that you would change our hearts, that there would be transformation taking place within us as you reveal the different ways in which we have sinned against you, the way that you reveal to us the way that we are lacking in our trust of you. Oh God, help us to be a repentant people. Help us to be a people who are always being challenged, always being changed, always being reformed by your word. And so we pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we begin this time together, I did want to consider something. I think sometimes we have popular ways of looking at Jesus or thinking about Jesus. And, um, and there's always this flux throughout church history. There's always been this kind of, 
uh, two different kinds of, uh, one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum of how people would approach Jesus. And I think it probably stems back into the Middle Ages when, um, when this kind of Mariology became a very prominent theme in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and, and primarily, I think it, it, it kind of was itself cultural because oftentimes in, in ancient kingdoms, uh, the way that a nobleman might approach the king to really get something done is by going to who? Just go to his mom, right? Either she's the queen mother or mothers had a special place in the heart of the king. And so oftentimes that one and her opinion, her influence was much greater than anyone else's in the life of the king. And so people would approach the queen mother or they would approach uh, the king's mother and, and speak to her, ask her certain things. And so as a result, this kind of concept it drifted its way into the church and became even more powerful in relationship to Mary. And so, and so Jesus was kind of looked at as being this kind of harsh kind of king, one who ruled with an, uh, uh, an, uh, a rod of iron, one who was very strict. And so if you really wanted to get the ear of the king, you would go to the mother. And so as a result, you have a lot of uh, a lot of prayers being offered to Mary. We, 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 we see that even this kind of view of Jesus wasn't something that was immediately stopped with the coming of the Reformation. And there was still this kind of balancing act. Some people looked at Jesus as being more harsh, uh, more kingly, more authoritative, and some looked at him as, as being someone that you could approach and maybe was more of a friend and these kinds of things. But even as we approach like this concept of who Jesus is and what does Jesus look like? What do we think about when we think of Jesus? Uh, we have kind of a, uh, usually this kind of reaction. So against kind of a stoic kind of idea of Jesus, we have this reaction to like, Jesus is a friend of mine kind of songs like Sunseed and Seed. So if you go to YouTube, you can find it. It's a horrible song. I wouldn't play it in church. Or you have, you know, secular movies like Talladega Nights. Where, where they start talking about Jesus around the table, and one guy says, well, I like, you know, I like the baby Jesus myself. You know, I like to pray to the baby Jesus. And like everybody else has their own conception of Jesus and how they want to talk to Jesus. And, and, and so you have this idea of, of just this, this kind of a buddy Jesus. And I think oftentimes that's what we have in our culture. We have this kind of a buddy Jesus that we approach Jesus in this way. He's just kind of there for us, you know, he... He cares about us. He wants to know us. Um, and this concept, and it always reminds me of this, when people use the words personal Lord and Savior. Now, I, I understand what we're trying to accomplish with that, that He is intimate with each of us. But oftentimes what it makes me think of is this, this is, it's a personal God. It's a, it's a household God. He's your personal God. He's, he's your God. Not necessarily anybody else's. He's yours. He belongs to you. And I don't think that that's what we see in Scripture. This idea of, of what we would say a personal Lord and Savior. It doesn't mean that I'm saying that Jesus isn't intimately involved in every believer's life, independently, but also corporately together with a church. What I'm saying is maybe sometimes the way that we think about Jesus is wrong. The way that we, we visualize Jesus the way that we, we think about Him in relationship to prayer, the way that we think about Him in relationship to His kingdom, because sometimes it seems like our Jesus is really just all about us. And the truth is, He's not just all about us. He's about the glory of God. We fit into that plan. But lest we think too highly of ourselves, it's important for us to think about the way we understand Jesus. 
What we have here in this book is extremely special. Because there's really no other place in Scripture that so clearly exemplifies, demonstrates, reveals the glory of the risen Christ quite like this. These are the words of Jesus. Too many times I've heard people say that, that the, I like the Jesus of the Gospels and he seems so much more friendly and, and all about love and, and peace and these kinds of things. Um, and the, Paul, his letters, they're a little bit more harsh and, and strict and so on. But I don't think that that's the case. For one, if you read the Gospels, I don't think that's the case. But when you look at this book here, Paul the Apostle wrote letters. This is the letters of the risen Christ to his church. To us. And if we're mindful of it this morning, we'll see him in a different light. The kingship of Christ. The power of Christ. The authority of Christ. So as we look at this greeting this morning to the seven churches, I want us to see three very important things. The first is the source of the revelation. We see the source of the revelation. Then we find the purpose of the revelation and then the culmination of the revelation. So let's look together at the first of these, the source of the revelation. Look at verse 4 again. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, as I said last week, we look at this, this whole book in its apocalyptic language. There is so much symbolism that's taking place here. John here, he's now, he begins by addressing the seven churches. Now, this number of seven is, is not accidental. It's not like there were only seven churches in Asia Minor and that was it. There was a lot of churches in Asia Minor. Colossae is not mentioned. Troas is not mentioned. But, but here he selects seven of these churches. And the seven is really important because it's a favorite number in the book of Revelation. It's a favorite number. And, and usually what it symbolizes is completeness or perfection. We find this originally in the seven days of creation. Right? God created everything and it was good. And he did all of it in seven days. There's all kinds of examples of, of sevens usage, usage as this kind of completeness or, or perfection. We look back at Leviticus 4. 4. It says that there, the, the priest shall dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. So it signifies the completeness of the atonement or the, the blood's effectiveness upon the people. The seven days of festivals, the seven days and the seven circles are times that they would go around the city of Jericho and then it was destroyed. Uh, the length and period of uncleanness and cleanness issues. And the significance here with the number of churches is that the churches here represent the fullness of the church of Jesus Christ. All of His church. So John, when he's speaking this message, I think that's really important for us to remember. When we look at this passage, this scripture, it is addressed to us. We are a part of the seven churches. Now, we're not from Laodicea. We're, we're not from Pergamum. We're, we're, we're from J-Town. 
But we are part of the seven churches in the sense that it is, it is to the church of Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to remember that because the cautions and the warnings and the encouragements and the exhortations, these things are for us as well. For the trial of life, for the suffering, for the tribulation, for the end. So that we might have hope, so that we might fight against temptation, so that we might endure to the end and receive the crown of life. I want you to focus on these two words that he begins here with. Grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. And then he begins to explain who this is coming from. Now this is a very common way to open a letter in the ancient, ancient world, especially with the apostles. But, but the words here, they, they mean more than just the formality of the whole thing. It's the, it's the heart of the gospel. Grace and peace. What is grace? What is grace? Grace is, is simply God's favor upon you even though you don't deserve it. That's what grace is. God doesn't have to have grace. Grace is not something that we can earn. Grace is God's favor upon us even though we do not deserve it. And this is all about the gospel here, we, we see this in Ephesians chapter 2. One of my favorite passages, it says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. How? By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. But it's by grace we're saved by God's unmerited favor. And we're granted peace with God through His grace, through the gospel. Verse 19 of Colossians chapter 1 says, For in Him all the fullness of God, so about Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So the gospel itself, is the means by which God grants us peace with Him. So, who is it then? We know the obvious answer. If you're ever concerned and you don't have the answer, typically Sunday school has taught us that it's either Jesus, the Bible, or God. Right? Two of those are right in this particular question. It's like a multiple choice, it's like school. Who is it that offers to us grace and peace? God, right? Who is this God that we worship? Who is this God that we come and we sing about? Who is this God that we, we pray to? He's not a household God, is he? He's not just any, any God. He is the triune God. And I think that is the most beautiful thing that is exposed right here in this text, is that our God is not like all of the other gods. Our God is... is is triune. He is one God, but He has three persons. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. We see this right here in what John begins to explain to us. We see this, the, 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 the God the Father aspect, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Beautifully showing us the unchangeable nature of God. And this is the God of the Old Testament that we see, right? It's reminiscent of what, what happens 
Even with Moses, as Moses is there before the burning bush, he's taking off his sandals because it's holy ground, and he's kneeling down there before the bush, and it's on fire, it's not being consumed, and Yahweh is speaking to him, and he says, I can't go because they won't believe me. And he said, no, you're going to go. He says, but who will I tell them is sending me? And what does he say? I am. That's what he says. I am who I am. What does that mean? It means there's nothing else in the world that, that can define me. I am who I am. None of us can really say that. We're defined by a multitude of other things. But God is who He is. God is saying, I am. I am always. I am existent. I am unchanging. I am who I am. And I don't alter myself. He is the one who is. He is the one who was. He is the one that is to come. Friends, honestly, <clears throat> that aspect of God, when we're approaching the trial, we're going through a really hard place in life, that, isn't that a comfort? That even in the midst of hardship, your God doesn't change. Your God doesn't alter based upon his appetite whether or not you fed him that day. Your God is unchanging, immutable. He is the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Then John goes on, John goes on he says that he highlights the Spirit, God the Spirit. He says the seven spirits who are before his throne. There again, seven. Now God the Spirit is not seven separate spirits. And John's not referring to spiritual beings around the throne necessarily. He, he's saying that only grace and peace come through God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And John is using this number of seven to express the fullness or the perfection of the Spirit of God in His work in the church. And again, friends, this ought to be encouraging to us. No matter what you're going through right now, God has not forgotten you. He's not lost track of you. He's not ignorant of what is going on in your life. He knows what's happening in your life. And His Spirit, not only is He indwelling those who are followers of Jesus Christ, but He is around us. He is with us. One of my, my favorite portions of this ancient Celtic um, prayer that was inscribed, traditionally just inscribed on Patrick of Ireland's shield says, I arise today, it's a beautiful idea of the Trinity, I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through the confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. But then he goes on, and he, he, as he's gone through this entire prayer, and then he begins to trust in the presence of God, the Spirit of Christ. He says, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right and Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down and Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. We believe that the Spirit of God, God Himself is omnipresent. He was always with us. So regardless of what you're going to go through in life, 
grace and peace can be extended to you from the triune God of the universe through His Spirit. But then he's talking about the Son next. God the Son. He says, Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting. I think a lot of times, <laughs> Brian said this on Wednesday night at midweek worship, that Christ is not actually Jesus' last name. I think that's funny because I think a lot of people think that, that Christ is His last name. The, the best way would actually, to, to because Christ is a title... For us English speakers, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, and that's why we think it's his surname, to think putting it at the end. That's not normally the way that we, we do it. Usually the title comes first, right? Mr. So-and-so, not so-and-so Mr., right? That's just how we do it in English. So really, it ought to be Christ Jesus, because Christ, Christos, is, is, is high, highlighting this messianic nature of Jesus, the, the kingliness of Jesus, that Jesus really is the anointed coming king. He is the one that was promised. That's what he says. So when you say Christ Jesus, you're saying something very significant. You're saying something that you believe about who Jesus is and his identity. That he is not only, not only is he one who was a human born uh, years and years ago, lived a life that was exemplary, and then died as an example. You're not saying any of that. You're saying that Jesus himself is the Christ. He's the promised God-man that was to come and to, to save all of humanity. That's what you're saying when you say the words Jesus Christ. But then he, he even begins to explain a little bit more about Jesus. He says that Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the only faithful man, the only one who was able to actually accomplish the covenant, fulfill the covenant, and adequately testify to God. You remember what it says in the Gospels, that Jesus came preaching. Again, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, declaring to everyone that they ought to repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God was at hand or near. Then he goes on and he says that he's the firstborn of the dead. John's talking about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Remember, that's what Paul just said just a moment ago about that's what brought us peace. He's the firstborn. What does this mean? He's the, he's the heir. He's the leader. He is the head of the family. He is the one that will lead all of us to resurrected life if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then finally he says that Jesus is the ruler of all of the kings of earth. Now we can see this kind of idea from a variety of different passages but I think probably Psalm 2 is one of the most spectacular. Psalm 2, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Humble yourself before the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Jesus is the King over all kings and the Lord over all lords. So it's important for us to remember who can extend grace to us in the trial. It's equally as important to, to remember who grants us peace when we're at our lowest moments in life. It's God, our triune God. And I don't know where you're at today, emotionally. What's, 
really going on in everybody's life because oftentimes those are the things that we really work hard at to hide from people. You may have gotten a diagnosis that was troubling this, this week. I don't know. Maybe you're just existing in a hard marriage. And no matter what you try, it never seems to get any better. It's just the same old thing every day, every week, every month. Or maybe you're just, you're lonely. You're lonely and you're scared because you're getting closer and closer to the end of life and you don't really know what to expect, but you want reassurance. Or maybe you're angry, frustrated with your own self because you fight against the same kinds of sin all the time without any real effectiveness. And you don't know what the problem is, but you're just really frustrated that you can't take care of this problem, this pattern. The God that we worship is the God that through the Apostle John penned these words to his church. He's the one that gives to us grace and peace. He is the source of the revelation. But now notice the purpose of the revelation. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John tells us that the purpose of this letter written by our king is for the honor and for the glory of God. And we see this throughout the book of Revelation. This is a resounding theme, the glory, the honor, the worship of God. And it's almost as if John, as he's, he's writing these words down, he, he becomes overwhelmed. He's just talked about how amazing this triune God is that we worship, and it's almost as he just can't hold it in anymore, and he just spills out of his mouth, and he begins to praise the Lord for who he is, the God who was, is, and is to come, the Spirit who dwells in eternal light, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Why does God get all the glory? Why are we to worship God? John tells us a little bit here, but just a couple of chapters away, the elders tell us very clearly why. It's because God created it all. By your will, everything continues to exist. And as a result, you are worthy of all of our worship, all of our adoration. They goes on and they say that they, they begin to sing a new song. And in this new song, it says that Jesus was the one who, who ransomed people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. He, he stole us away from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, and He delivered us and transplanted us into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus did. This language that He uses here of kingdom and priest, very reminiscent of the Old Testament, isn't it? The people of Israel were called a kingdom of priests. But now, instead of it just being one ethnicity, now it's multi-ethnic. All of us can be involved in this kingdom. Peter says it this way. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here it is, right here. It's so very clear. The purpose 
He doesn't just choose us to sit. He just doesn't, he doesn't call us out of darkness so that we might just sit on the sidelines in life. He doesn't call us out of darkness so we can do nothing. He calls us out of darkness and He gives us a purpose. And that purpose is very clear from Peter. He says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That doesn't mean you're just going to come to church on Sunday morning and proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and, and, and taken you into marvelous light. Now, that is a part of it. But if, if your Christianity really is coming to church and proclaiming the excellencies of God, if that's it, you're missing half of it. We're to proclaim the excellencies of God to the world, to the nations, to your mother-in-law, to your sister, to your best friend, to your grandma, to your neighbor that doesn't talk to you. That's what we're supposed to do. John, he gets to this point, and it's like it just spills out of him. He just praises the Lord. He spills out of him unexpectedly. How often does praise just kind of spill out of your lips unexpectedly? That's kind of a tough one, isn't it? Most of the time, the things that spill out of our mouths are not praise, right? Lots of griping, complaining sometimes. But it's true that whatever usually spills out is usually, at the time, that's what you're filled up with. That's just typically how it happens. If you're in traffic, for example. Now, one of the most frustrating things in my life at this point, living on Taylorsville Road. Everybody in here has driven on Taylorsville Road, or I don't know how you got here, right? <laughs> you go down Taylorsville Road, and it tees with Hurstborn, right? Have we all done that? Have you ever turned right on Hurstborn? There is not a stop sign there. There's not a yield. There's actually its own independent lane that allows you to just continue on your way. When I approach that intersection, and there's someone in front of me that is not familiar with the situation. I don't think it's ever happened that I saw them stop, felt impressed in my spirit to use my horn, and then I didn't, and I just said, oh, blessed be. I don't think that's ever happened. Ever happened. Usually whatever is on the inside, that's what spills out over your lips. So what we ought to be doing is be constantly filling ourselves with the Word of God. Constantly filling ourselves with the good and not the bad. We ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We ought to be known by others because we are blessing other people. We, we ought to be remembered for always having a song of Christ on our lips. We ought to be filling ourselves on a daily basis with the Word of God, with the Scriptures. And then... When the trials come, and spillage always happens more in the trial, when the trials come and the spills come, what comes out of you is blessing and not cursing. 
purpose of the revelation is the glory of God. And lastly, the culmination of the revelation. Verse 7, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So finally here, right at this point, John sums up this culminating factor about the entire book of Revelation, what it's about. Remember that there's a tremendous amount of Old Testament imagery in Revelation. John is, is reminding us of this language that is used to describe the day of the Lord. You look back through the Old Testament, the second coming, or the, 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 the day of the Lord or the second coming of Christ, that, that's the hope of believers, but it is the terror of the enemies of God. He comes with the clouds, which means with glory and with anguish and with wrath and with judgment. What we do understand from this passage is that the day of Christ's return will be like nothing we've ever seen. Nothing that we've ever experienced. It doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus will float down from heaven, parting the eastern sky. The language isn't necessarily literal. It's, it's reminding us of all of those other passages that we find in the Old Testament that describe the fearsome nature of the day of the Lord. We look back in the Old Testament at several different places. Daniel chapter 7 he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Jesus picks up this language, this imagery that, that Daniel had when he, in Mark's gospel when he was questioned by the high priest about who he was. And Jesus said to him, I am, which is staggering. And then he goes on and he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Ezekiel describes the day of the Lord in this way, with the clouds and this imagery. Now, uh, you think... You think Revelation is difficult to understand. <laughs> read, through, read through Ezekiel. Ezekiel, he says, And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne and an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it was gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Zephaniah, speaking about the day of the Lord, he says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The day, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities. And John, even Revelation chapter 14, talks about this. Verse 15, 
He says, and an angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on a cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle around the earth, and the earth was reaped. I think sometimes we imagine that the day of the Lord is going to be like this really incredible sunrise, and then like the clouds part, and Jesus begins to bound in with his armies, but he's riding a white pegasus, and he floats on down to the earth. That's not at all the imagery that we find from the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not the image that we find. Imagine the most incredible storm you've ever experienced. And then multiply that exponentially. The clouds are almost black. You cannot see. The lightning is streaking across the sky. The thunder is so, so booming that it crowds out all of the noise that is in anything else around you and it vibrates through your entire body. The terror of being caught out in that kind of storm. That is what the day of the Lord will be like for those who do not know Christ. This is the kind of picture that the Scripture seems to paint for us. He's coming for judgment. He's coming to destroy. He's coming to bring justice and purity. And the Bible doesn't really know anything about an invisible return of Jesus. The scripture doesn't really teach that. On the contrary, it says that every eye shall see him. Those who pierced him will see. They'll be raised. They will see and they will know he is the one who is, who was, and is to come. There will be no missing his arrival because the king will come in power and glory. And then finally, Jesus declares he is the Alpha and the Omega. Now, if you're not familiar with the Greek alphabet, that's just the first and the last letter. It's like he's saying, I'm the A and the Z. We don't say that in English. But what he's saying is, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. Not necessarily that he has a beginning, but he's saying, I am all of it. Paul said it this way, I am, our Jesus is all in all. He is everything. There is no one besides me. I am God. That's what he's saying. And all of this matters for us, doesn't it? The king will return to judge the living and the dead. But we do not have to fear the day of the Lord if we're in Christ. Why? Is it because of something you did that was really good? Because you tried to live your life in the way that's pleasing to the people around you and to God? Is you're kind because you're good to your kids? You're a great grandparent? You always remember the birthdays? No. It's not any of those things. Why don't we have to fear the day of the Lord? It's because of the gospel. It's because of Christ. We have this promise that comes to us that even as the day approaches, Jesus says in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. Outside are the dogs 
and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Remember what I said at the beginning? He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take water, the water of life, without price. Friends, maybe you're here today and the thought of the day of the Lord is fearful to you. Because you don't know where you are with God. I would challenge you today not to leave this place before you repent and believe in the gospel. Talk to someone here this morning, myself or one of the pastors, Pastor Cameron, Pastor Grant, any of our deacons, anyone. But get that settled today. Understand and hear the gospel that you can be saved today. You can live in such a way that you do not have to be fearful of the day of the Lord because you can live with the promises of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to be reminded that God will make all of these things right in the end. Some terrible things have happened to you. You're going through trial after trial. It seems like you've lost. And you're struggling because you're just like, I don't know how any of this could be made right. And it's time He will restore all that was lost. More than we can possibly imagine. And so you can trust Him through the trial. Or maybe you're a believer here this morning and you, honestly, you just need to be reminded that the Master's coming back. You're a believer, but you're living in a way that is unfaithful. We don't know when he's coming back. And so I would challenge you, don't waste your time. Don't waste your life by doing things that are worldly or unimportant. Use your life and maximize your life for the glory of God. Use every moment for his glory. Let the things that spill out of your life be praise. Let's pray. Father, you help us now, we pray, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, that we might become more obedient followers of Christ as a result of your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name.